the most aspirational high level line is if you build a good community, your community and users feel like they belong to the product. And so that combination of ingredients really built an ecosystem where our users were just empowered to build and innovate around SoRare. You're listening to Seedcamp First, the definitive guide to help early stage founders get their companies off the ground. Brought to you exclusively through the wisdom and lessons learned from some of the brightest minds across the Seedcamp nation. Welcome to Seedcamp First, everyone. We're very excited today to have an episode where we will cover everything community. We have the chance to have Daniel from SoRare here. He's been in charge of community at SoRare since the early days, and we can't wait to get into some of the tactics SoRare used to build their community, some of the mistakes they've made, and better understand also just like the role of community when you're building a fast-growing startup. Dan, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Sia. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Can you maybe like just start by giving us a, a brief background about who you are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm Daniel or Dan, depending on whether you're my mother or everyone else. So Dan mainly. I joined SoRare in November 2020, so close to three years ago. Before SoRare, I worked as community manager and kind of brand manager and a bit of everything really at Nordius, which is a gaming company that built Top 11. So I was with them for about five years and I joined when they were looking to grow more or less from scratch in certain markets. And I really enjoyed that experience. Then I worked for creative agencies for a bit at, at Nordius, I'd worked a lot with agencies and I was always quite curious about working on the other side and what it would be like to work with multiple products and companies. I did that for about a year and a half and I hated it. And then luckily one day I got a message from a recruiter that was working for SoRare. I was thinking about getting back into the gaming industry and ideally football and gaming. And I just got really, really lucky. So a recruiter reached out to me on LinkedIn and then I did the interviews and I think within two months, I had relocated to Paris and I've been here ever since. That's and, pretty amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I also always say when people ask me that I've been incredibly lucky to cross the path of uh, of Nico and Adri. I'm a massive football fan. And uh, I have to say, just working with you guys over the, the past three, four years has been a pretty amazing journey. And yeah, you want to maybe quickly for the audience, so precise what Sorare does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So SoRare builds fantasy games. We have three products. There's football, NBA, and MLB. And we are also very innovative with blockchain and NFT technology. So with our partnerships with NBA, MLB, and then also a huge amount of football leagues, including the top five, MLS, and many, many great clubs around the world, we have IP where we build kind of NFT cards. So our users, our community can purchase these cards on our live and very active marketplace. And by purchasing these cards, they can build these teams, they can build collections, and they can also use these cards in our fantasy products. Um, so that's kind of the core loop. So yeah, the guys started uh, SoRare in late 2018. We invested in early 19. You joined in November 19. Can you tell us a bit more about those early days and how you kick-started that community building effort? So I'm, I'm double-checking the years now. I, I joined in November 2020. So it'll, it'll be three years now 
in November. Right. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm saying that not to be petty with with the dates, but more to give credit to a lot of the great work that had already been done when I joined. So when I joined in November 2020, there was already a very very engaged core community that lived on Discord and was starting to grow and live on Twitter. And so what Nico had done from day one, pretty much, is he knew he had this really interesting kind of value proposition with what Sower was. He knew it was really new and innovative. And he just started from there and started to integrate himself into communities, very, very niche and micro communities in which he believes that new value proposition would resonate with them. So he searched for that kind of niche crossover between crypto fans and diehard sports fans and collectors. And I think there was, if I'm right, there was one that existed already with MLB, something that was quite similar. And within there, he was finding people that might be curious about a football game. And he used and nurtured these relationships to also help with product development. And from there, having this kind of core group of people who were very curious about what Adrian and Nico were building, he's really focused on Discord and grew from there. So by the time I joined Brian, who, like me, has done like a large number of jobs at SoRare, but he was kind of our growth guru in the early days. He had also tapped into the potential from what Nico had already started building, which was we had a really cool core community and there was a huge potential with word of mouth. People were excited about what we were building. So when I joined as well, Brian had already started putting the tools in place for the community to pretty much grow and engage with each other. So there was an ambassador program had just been set up. There was a referral program had just been set up and an affiliate program was in its early stages of ideation. So that's everything that was in place when I joined. Nice. And so the point of touch you had with the community, were there mostly over Discord and, and Twitter maybe? Or were you using any other tools? There was Telegram and it was Discord. They were the two big ones. Uh, Telegram largely because that's where a lot of the crypto audience lives. Discord because there was a nice crossover between gamers and crypto living there as well. But what we found was when I joined shortly after, there was a growing interest from really, really diehard fantasy players <laughs> who were way more native to Twitter or well, X, formerly known as Twitter. But they were actually learning Discord and moving and migrating to Discord just because that's where our community was living. That's where we were present. So when I joined, Discord was growing and super active, but still you could go in there and scroll the general chat and there wouldn't be such a high level activity where it was impossible to follow. You could really chat with people in the morning and you kind of knew everyone that was part of it. So it was still a size where everyone knew everyone. But part of when I joined, uh, Nico kind of on day one shared with me the adjacent user theory. So he was saying, look, this is where we are right now. We're pretty strong with this crossover of crypto and sports audience, but it's a small market and our product is pretty good for them, but it's not great for all these fancy players. We have the best of blockchain technology, but we also had the frustrations and the worst of it, like gas prices, fluctuating gas prices, that means nothing to a football fan that is just re ready to collect cards. So my first challenge was to see how could we start making easy, quick tweaks to the product and also how we communicate so that it resonates more with our next target market, which was really diehard football fans who are either big collectors or big, big fantasy players. Nice. And just like on that role of those early adopters, really interesting to, to hear a bit mm -hmm. about how 
Nico very intentionally went after micro communities he had identified that thought could be the first ones to resonate with what mm -hmm. uh, Sorare was doing. But yeah, can you share a bit more about how you were also interacting with those uh, folks who are very early in the community? Did you really work on giving them more tools and content and all that so that they could start evangelizing others about the platform? Or how did it work, this relationship with those early adopters? So we have these three community pillars, which are pillars that you, you use across, in my opinion, the full journey of a company from small to big. You have to listen to them and make sure that they know that they're being heard. You, uh, you make sure they know they're being heard by engaging with them as well. So that's mm -hmm. being proactive, but also reactive to what you're seeing and listening. And then you also have to empower them. So when I joined, a lot of the early adopters had also taken upon themselves to say, well, look, it's up to us to help grow this. And Honestly, for me, it was extremely exciting coming in as a community manager because one of the hardest things to do as a community manager is to make our users proactive enough to firstly engage with our content and give feedback, but then also to build their own tools and ecosystems around it. So we were lucky in that the inherent nature of blockchain technology and what Adrien also, his vision from like the tech side of SOAR was that, you know, it would be an open world where you have access to the APIs and all that kind of stuff. And also Nico's very proactive approach in being transparent, available to users, making sure that they feel that they belong to the product. That's the most aspirational high level line is if you build a good community, your community and users feel like they belong to the product. And so that combination of ingredients really built an ecosystem where our users were just empowered to build and innovate around SoRare. So you had SoRare data that was built in the really early stages. So when I joined, Nico had a list of like, you have to speak to these 15 people and just build relationships with them and understand, and they'll be key to your understanding of what SoRare is. And so that's what I did. So for the first two, three months, I just really ingrained myself with all these amazing projects that people were building, trying to understand a little more about it because I was new to NFT and blockchain, really. I think I'm waffling a little bit from your original question. <laughs> Tell me if I haven't answered it. That's, that's but, really interesting. Yeah. No, okay, like, essentially, yeah. that was it. Yeah, Adrien and Nico had put the ingredients in yeah. place for users to be proactive. And then from there, when I came in, it was just to make sure that we continued to build on that momentum. You know, like if I had yeah. joined and then decided ah, we're going to close the Discord and, you know, it's old news. We're going to close the Telegram. Let's go Twitter. That would have stunted our growth, you know. So really, my job was just there to keep the momentum going and being a more visible and human presence that, that the lads had previously hadn't had the time to commit to. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's critical, right? Also doing those things that won't really scale probably, but early on will build the trust and also bring some authenticity to the mm -hmm. community. Uh, it feels yeah. like that is often something we hear about when it comes to early community building. And yeah, I remember you were a bit the soul of that Discord, right? You were everywhere, replying in DMs every day, posting updates, etc. I mean, to which extent were you just being yourself or were you actually very intentional or the people you would interact with on a daily basis about the posts you would make on the channels? Mm -hmm. How were you thinking about that at that time? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So initially in the early days, it was a lot easier to be myself and to be yeah. quite transparent and human and all that, because obviously it's not that the the stakes are lower, but you're with a smaller group. You kind of understand everyone. 
And also when you're a certain size, there's more acceptance and patience on the community side as well. Because like, well, look, they're starting off, they're a small team. And with that, you can just afford to be a lot more casual as well with how you engage with users and or the community. So I really was myself. I used to make a lot of jokes. And if I saw that people were making jokes in the Discord, I'd just take part. I quite like a, a laugh. And also, in my case, it was a lot easier to relate to the community. I, I didn't have the crypto background, but I was a big, big football fan. I am a big football fan, but also a big gamer. And I came from the gaming industry. And a lot of them were kind of similar age to me, anywhere from late 20s to late 30s, 40s. Um, there's older ones as well. But yeah, so it was really easy to connect and relate to them, really. And, and it was really motivating. But like you said, it's not something that can really scale. So that was an area where if we want to go into the mistakes, that's an area that if I look back, I would have liked to have done a better job there. I think in the early days, it was obviously really important to be present in Discord, be there all the time. And I was there pretty much, you know, not 24-7, but I was there at the weekends as well, making sure that users saw that we cared and that we were going above and beyond, like, you know, the call of our duty. You want the early community to feel that, like, this is a team of hard workers and people who care about what they're building. I really do, and I really did at the time. But it's obviously not something that can scale. And I think where we maybe lacked a bit was that when we did grow quickly as a team and staff up, we were slow to put the right resources in place on a community side so that we could still have that active presence in Discord. And I, I think I could have done a much better job at balancing who I interact with in the Discord and when, and also how can I build foundations and put new systems in place in which we can also scale and speak with a much wider community, not just the core community, but you know, even if it's through support. Like when I joined, I was also managing our support and we were getting maybe 30 tickets a day, which is really, really manageable. But in February 2021, uh, there was like, you know, the big spike, the, the big boom. And then within, because there was loads of things that we hadn't improved yet on the product side, within like a day, we were getting two, 3,000 tickets every two, three days. And it became impossible to manage. And then because no one really... I, knew that boom was coming, but because I hadn't really scaled the support side of stuff enough, because I was quite focused on Discord and one-on-one -on -one interactions, it put us in a bit of a, a tricky situation where we had potential for huge growth, but a lot of users were churning because we didn't have a, a very good support system in place. So yeah, that's just an example of some of the challenges between scaling, but also being very approachable. <laughs> yeah. Now we'll get more into some of the, the challenges and learnings from, yeah. from few years but just to cover a bit more like the way things have evolved because obviously i mean so rare went multi-sport i guess you increasingly have a global audience has that impacted the way you you think about the community i mean i guess like the way you speak to football fans might be different from like the way you speak to baseball fans and nba fans and maybe even like across geographies you see cultural differences etc so yeah, just keen to hear a bit more about how you've been coping with that. That's a good question as well. So I think we had like a, you know, obviously there was a strategic discussion to decide whether we just keep one account and we speak to everyone through that one account, or do we start building separate communities for each sport? And we decided on building separate communities for each sport. There was a number of reasons for this. One of the big ones was because part of our initial vision for where we saw a lot of the growth coming for MLB and NBA was 
the States. And it's a market that we really wanted to grow in anyway, even on a football side. You know, you just need to see the huge hype around Messi going to MLS recently. The potential for the football audience in the States is there and it's huge. Uh, we just felt that it would be easier to do that with accounts that were speaking specifically to a US audience in kind of US hours and all that. And also we saw the value of what we had built with so rare football in terms of having like micro communities and using them to kind of nurture and grow in the early stages. And I think if someone was joining Sorry MLB and they saw this huge discord where everyone's talking about football, but they were playing for specific baseball reasons, you feel like, especially if you're joining and want to join something small and you feel like you're early, you feel like maybe you've missed a boat and you don't know who to reach out to and all that. So that's kind of, that was our main thinking for keeping them separate. And then in terms of tone of voice, there's just a natural difference in terms of if you follow, you know, even like sport networks in the States, there's just a natural difference in the way they speak with their audience and everything like that. And I think that's an area where we're trying to find a balance between speaking to like a global audience, European audience and a US audience. Like it, it is quite a, a challenge. And I think in the early stages of last year, we maybe lost that identity a little bit. We used to be a little more tongue in cheek, a little more like, you know, yeah. what's the word? Not aggressive, but like, you know, we, we weren't happy. We were there to shake things up a little bit. And I think we, we diluted it a little bit when we were moving to the US and trying to think of like, well, what's this one voice we can have that could speak to everyone? And by doing that, we ended up with something that was quite vanilla. So that's something we're revisiting as well as how can we bring more personality back? And then in the last couple of months, we've started working on that a bit. Nice. And so just like to like go a bit further on that front. So mm -hmm. does it mean that you have actually a community manager focused on the US sports or yep. how does it work? How is it like actually staffed? So in February, we hired a community manager for US sports. He's based in the New York office and he's focused purely on US and MLB. But again, it was a lot of work. We were still launching things for a while on the US side and also on the football side for a bit because the engineering teams ramped up, the product teams ramped up, and we were just shipping a lot, lot more. A lot of stuff was getting missed by the community team, whether because it wasn't shared to us or because we just had too much going on. Our calendar was full and it would go to the social media team or more marketed team and we bring it to market and the position would be wrong or we might be missing some key details on why we introduced a new feature. And then that naturally leads to community frustration because they don't understand why we might have done something. So earlier this summer, we kind of staffed up the team, which is responsible for bringing things to market, but also making sure that we're thoughtful in our product development and that we user centric. And so now that's kind of like falls on the product marketing team. And we all sit within the gameplay teams for each product. So I focus on football and I kind of oversee product marketing, but we've since moved someone who was performing really well in the support team. And now he's taken over on the community management side of it. A lot of the kind of operational day-to-day -day relationship building side, he's kind of taken over from me on that, which means we can be way more hands-on. And we've also done the same model for US sports. So we have a product manager a product marketing manager in there and a community manager, the same community manager supporting that person, which means we now have four people as opposed to one, you know, nine months ago. And it's really helped. Like, I think even now you can see in the recent MLB updates that were really thoughtful. I think our community are starting to see that we're really focused on them and it's helping us a lot. I think I'm looking forward to the next few months, really. Nice. Uh, exciting. And very keen also to hear a bit more about how you track success when it comes to your community mm -hmm. initiatives. Is there 
ways to like look at the ROI we get from the resources and efforts we put in community? How are you approaching that? Are there metrics that you're looking at? The, yeah, so the, there are. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like you said, the, the community management role or even function is relatively new, not really in the gaming industry, but I think in, in companies, they have the potential to go beyond gaming. The community function is maybe sometimes a lot more connected to support or just events or something like that, but the scope is quite small. So within SoRare, the KPIs and how we measure the ROI for community has changed a lot from year to year. So initially, we were big on growth and nurturing, jumping on the word of mouth potential. So the main ways in which we could measure the success of our work was, you know, social media, community growth. So it's like community is peer-to-peer collaboration around something that someone loves. So we want to build those channels so that they can engage with each other. So we wanted to grow Twitter and also hit a certain engagement thing. So in the early years, it was pretty straightforward. It was like, let's try hit this channel growth and maintain this level of engagement. It's important to have engagement because it's very easy to pump and inflate social media numbers, you just run competitions, but it's a lot harder to maintain engagement. So that was the main one. But then ultimately, community feeds into two larger teams KPIs in most company structures and kind of in server as well. So what our work is largely feeds into product goals, but also there's like a growth and marketing function as well, where we can support their work too. So they would kind of define those KPIs. And we just make sure that the projects that we work feed into those and we can measure them in a certain way. And there's also the side of community work that isn't an exact science and that's it's a lot more qualitative. So it's like, how do you measure the success of your relationship with someone or how do you measure even community sentiment? And there's no real standard science for measure community sentiment. And in all the interviews that I've ever done with people where I've interviewed people for community roles or even anything that touches community, I always ask them, how would you measure community sentiment? Hoping that someone has like the holy grail answer. And I'm yet to have it or find it, but I'm really optimistic with AI. I think I'm going to start, it's on my list of things to do is to start digging through AI tools to see if anyone's built a better sentiment tool, which like scrapes social media and really packages things in a way in which it really actually says, this is your community sentiment and this is why they feel that way. But yeah, to boil it down, there's the whole qualitative side of things, which is community sentiment, which is a lot harder to measure, but we kind of use NPS pretty much. And before we're looking at the NPS surveys, we run them once a month. And then before the NPS ones, I kind of like have a little guess. So I write down all the things that I think people will be happy and annoyed about. And I make a little prediction of what I think our score will go up or down. And if it reflects the NPS scores, it means that either I have a good understanding of what's happening in our ecosystem or the NPS is also working. Like if we're both aligned, for me, that's enough of a representation that, okay, we're measuring things kind of accurately. Yeah, that makes sense. And how do you strike that balance between, you know, obviously still catering to the needs of those early adopters, which in the case of Sorare might have like those large galleries and uh, are super active also on social networks, sharing about their Sorare journey, but also being accommodating to the new joiners and their fresh perspectives. How are you thinking about that? Initially, I was kind of dealing with all of those people and that was tough because we were really focused on word of mouth. I put a lot of focus in speaking with community thought leaders or anyone that was showing really impressive and huge levels of wanting to be proactive within the community. But now we kind of separate those across teams. So 
because of our affiliate program, a lot of the the people who are users who create, you know, content around SoRare or have visions for tools around SoRare, you know, they sign up to the affiliate program. And we have an affiliate manager who manages those relationships. And my role with those relationships is more that if we identify opportunities, say for maybe giving tickets away, or there's a cool event on, or if we're launching like a cool product, I'll just go to the affiliate manager and say, look, this is an opportunity. This is how I would package it, but they take it from there and, mm -hmm. and kind of leverage that in the best way possible. In terms of new users, we have a user research team now, and they largely focus on kind of analysis of new users and how they engage with our platform, what's positive, what's negative and all that. And then there's kind of like a gray area between those cores, which is people that are just active in the communities, but maybe show potential to become affiliates or influencers or show potential in any other way in which they can like feed into our community. And it could even just be someone who flags issues and shares feedback. And with them, it's very much just being active, reactive, proactive to those. So just make sure that you're present in all your Discord channels, your Twitter and all that, so that they know that if they continue to say these things, the product will continue to improve. You know, you don't want them feeling that there's no presence there from the company. What is really fascinating with Sorare is that it's not only a digital experience, right? Like there is this link to the real world. And over yep. the years, you've seen more and more like also, you know, just maybe self-organized football tournaments. And, you know, you guys also like just enable those experiences through giving away tickets and all that. And so to which extent as a community lead, were you also involved in those like real world experiences? Is that like another team dealing with that? Or how do you work with that side of the community and what is happening on that front? The organic stuff is our work pretty much. So what we do is we get approached by loads of community members with like amazing ideas. And then we often have the same ideas. Since day one, I've been passionate about Nico's pitch of bridging fantasy to real, you know, and I love nurturing that loop. So it's always something every quarter, it's something at the back of my mind is like, how can we run new tests where we can test that loop, but also just build it as part of our brand and value proposition a little more, just like step by step. But we often don't have the resources to be able to like leverage that quite often because running events is time consuming and can be quite expensive. And when you're trying to be lean and uh, an active team, it's not always the best thing to prioritize. But luckily, we have loads of community members who are more than happy to run these and manage them. So for us, the main goal is just to support them in the best way we can. So a lot of the Paris Sora Club, for example, they were one of the innovators of this weekly five-a-side in Paris. And they got to a point where I think there was maybe a couple of hundred people wanted to sign up, but they had to do three games in a row. So what we did for them is we just, I would have, you know, monthly one hour calls with them to see what their ideas were. And we would just offer them jerseys, tickets to games for their kind of micro close community. And then also if they were running something more ambitious, like a tournament where members from the, the English community were flying in or members of the German community were flying in, we do our best to sort them out with nice PSG tickets for that weekend. I turn up to the event and we'd also pay for the booking of the pitches as part of our community budget. And then from there, you can see that these things are naturally growing. So they would post about it on Twitter. And then this summer, we had a seven-a-side competition that took place in Nottingham. And now there's one happening in, in Falkirk Stadium in Scotland next year. And so those things are kind of just naturally building. 
and all we were that like the flame wasn't even built by us they, they had the flame and we just gave a little bit more fuel for it to grow like that i can't really take that much credit for it it's just it's the community just being great um but if we didn't take part in those things it would be a big failure on our side like you have to really make sure that you nurture all these kind of positive contributions because then you just become a company with no face and people will stop doing it no it makes sense and yeah that's awesome that uh in, in only like three, four years, you've managed to get those initiatives left and right, just being started by community members. Just keen to take a bit of a step back. You know, we, we did discuss the fact that community in general is a quite new function in uh, a lot of fast growing startups. So in the case of SoRare, I mean, clearly we understood that uh, community can be related to the work of the product team. It can be related to the work that maybe the folks that are in charge of your affiliate program do, etc. Mm -hmm. Where does it sit exactly in the org and how does that evolve over time? I mean, where do you see it going also in the org moving forward? So right now it sits, um, so we had a small restructure of the company in the early summer. There was a number of reasons for this restructure, but there was this particular focus on, well, we're dropping the ball sometimes with how we launch things and the transparency we share and stuff. So the idea was to staff up a little more there. So community now sits in the product team. So we mainly sit in with gameplay and community feeds into the larger product marketing organization. So yeah, I mentioned before, so there's four of us in that team right now and we work very closely with product but also closely with user research and growth and support. You know, it's just the nature of the work is that, in my opinion, anyway, that the best community managers and also product marketers are, are people who can wear multiple hats, a, a bit like a Swiss army knight, if you like, you know, which is also, there's positives to that. So that's where it sits right now. And the main focus for us is to build the new product marketing function so that it's kind of understood across the company. But, you know, our main success metric, we're still to define how we actually measure these things, but it's just that, if things get launched without the community knowing, or if things get launched without the community understanding why we're doing it, or if things get launched and we haven't actually squeezed as much potential out of this great feature as possible, then we haven't done our job. So that's one of the things is how we can bring things to market. And then the other two things we're prior working on is our over kind of arch and storytelling. So it's how can we redefine certain key aspects of the silver journey in a way so that it's understandable to new users, and existing users, because I think that's something where, where while our kind of brand awareness can be low in a lot of markets, it's an area that can really help grow brand is if you think of catchy two, three story lines that all fans, sports fans can relate to. And where it can go is uh, right now within our structure, I'm, I'm happy with where it sits, but I think if we were to grow, I think the product marketing function would be its own thing that would sit between marketing and product. Right now, I report to the head of a gameplay but i think eventually there would maybe be a head of product marketing that fits between the two but i don't think too much about hierarchies and stuff because i've always worked in startups <laughs> and where community often starts it's largely your the community managers in kind of early early stages it's they're responsible for support for social media and kind of feedback loops they're kind of the three pillars of it and then as you grow that changes uh, often i think what should happen is if you are experiencing a certain levels of hyper growth and hire people from different backgrounds, those people, and it's not a criticism, but you know, they may not be familiar with the potential for community, especially if community was key to the early stage development. And one advice I would say, and I think it's a mistake we made, is that we didn't allocate enough resources to the community function. And we didn't make sure that 
new hires understood its potential and what its scope was within SoRare. And I think if companies do experience rapid growth, it's to make sure that the community function is understood across, there's alignment across the company and to ensure that the resources are given to it because the work can become overwhelming. And what often happens is if you're experiencing hyper growth, a lot of new people are coming in, they have to understand the product on board. And while that's happening, there's often a community manager behind the scenes, like, you know, sticking their fingers and making sure there's no holes, leaks and like keeping things running behind. So that's a little bit of advice. Nice. No, that that makes total sense. I guess, Dan, I mean, would love to hear a bit about what you've been the most proud of when it comes to like community building at SoRare over the past few years. What's your biggest accomplishment? Oh, I don't know. Uh, um, I honestly don't know. There's a lot of things that I've done that I'm happy about, but like it's more things that happen behind the scenes. So it's not particularly, it's not really public facing, but I'm really, I, I you know, there was a, a period early last year where SOAR went through, you know, we were, it was hyper growth and we were hiring and growing quickly and staffing up. And a lot of people were joining in and we didn't have, you know, the proper onboarding. No company has a great uh, onboarding stage when it's going to hyper growth. But there were areas that we were lacking a bit to make sure that everyone who came in understood the key challenges of our product and also key frustrations of our community. And there was a while where I was finding it very difficult to highlight the importance of some of the community frustrations and how we need to change our product roadmap. So I remember there was a stage, I think it was early last year, maybe a year before where I had seen the product roadmap and had been signed off on. And in the previously, I would have been in the loop and actually reviewed it and helped ideate on it. And the, the roadmap wasn't addressing any of the key community frustrations. And up until then, we had been a very, very user-centric company, maybe a bit too much, you know, maybe too reactive to the feedback, but still it, it was a key part to our success. But the roadmap was kind of ignoring a lot of the key frustrations. And what I did is, I realized that the way I had been sharing community feedback wasn't resonating with the new hires. So I built actually a kind of quite about a five, six page report, obviously with a TLDR at the top, but quite a long comprehensive report backed by data, backed by quotes and speaking to actual users to show that the frustrations were were valid and critical. And then thanks to that report, it it kind of helped shift how the new hires saw the function of community and the potential for it in SoRare. And also it helped readjust our product roadmap so we were more thoughtful to the community. So that, I think that moment kind of stood out to me as a good one, but it, it's not really visible to the community. It's more work behind the scenes. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you're day-to-day -day the person who is the closest to the user base. And obviously the way you make the users feel count, but what is also key is the way you communicate back to the product team, to Nico, to other folks in the orgs. And that makes tons of sense. And maybe, you know, you mentioned before that you weren't like fully ready at some point to deal with like that hyper growth on the community front. I mean, is there anything you would do differently if you were like back in like, you know, November, 2020, is there anything you would like have approached a bit differently? Any big lessons there? Yeah, it was so that there's two, there's, there's one lesson that I now share to a lot of people who may join the support team or be front facing, you know, because I got to a point where I'm almost obsessed with being present in the discord and speaking with people one on one, I would sometimes end down these pigeonholes where for an hour and a half, I was speaking to someone 
on Discord about maybe feedback or trying to fix a problem they had, just that problem. And, you know, in hindsight, when you're heading towards hyper growth and you're quite a small lean team, it's not a good way to spend, a, you know, maybe 10% of your day. And so that's one thing I would definitely change is like not to get too caught up on one-on-one -on -one interactions and also not take things personally because that's part of it as well. The reason you end up in back and forth with someone is because you, you feel so passionate about the company. And if they're being very critical, almost trolly about it, you see it as a chance to try to change your mind, but ultimately it's just not time spent. So I would have reallocated the time I put into a lot of those interactions towards building just like infrastructure and systems that could help so we're kind of more long-term within six to 12 months. Like the, we built our Zendesk eventually. We, we hired our chief of staff, Thibaut, came in, I think around February, 2021. And his first project, like I said to him, look, our, our support is... I need help. And he his first project was building the Zendesk and he did it. You know, I helped him, but he did it really, really well and managed that whole project really well. But I still, you know, I think back to that and I was like, ah, I should have built that three months sooner, you know? Yeah, and it's same with other ones. I still think there's a huge amount of potential for our Reddit and I have never really given that much thought and care to it. We tried it a few times, but then growing any community on, an, on a new platform, but not a new platform, but like, you know, right now, I think we have 12, 13,000 on our Reddit or on our subreddit. But to be able to nurture that and keep it going, it needs a certain amount of resources, which I've never given it. But I I still feel that that's like just potential that we haven't tapped into, considering where a lot of fantasy, especially on the football side, a lot of fantasy football people live, like a lot of them live on Reddit. And I think if we build a core, and also a lot of the subreddits, it's the same model as Discord, really. It's just like these core community who are obsessed with the product and will spread it with word of mouth and like defend it to the last day those people live on reddit but we haven't really tapped into that yet so that's another one that i would have liked to have done in the early stages i think if we had like a twitter growing a discord growing and also reddit growing at the same time maybe we'd see a lot more growth and brand awareness than we have right now nice Thank you so much, Dan. You shared so many insights. I just wanted to maybe wrap up with a slightly more personal question. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are obviously getting a lot of energy out of the interactions you have with the community. How do you manage the changes of mood in the community? Do they impact you also on a personal level? How have you been dealing with that? They used to impact me uh, in the earlier stages and then like even within you know my personal life my my wife grew to hate the sound of the discord notification you know and sometimes but what i've learned is that now i don't take any of it personally so i take it a lot less to heart now when we have negative sentiment and i kind of try to, to approach things more as like well how can we change this why is this happening how can we change it rather than like ah they're attacking sora which is you know it's like a child you know and by not taking things personally, it just allows me to switch off better and, and think more clearly. And then also just with more resources, now that there's way more people and a lot of them more qualified than I am to think about things like, I don't know, for example, referral abuse or something like that, you know, that I used to have to think about that. But now there's way more other people who think about those things who are better equipped to find solutions to them than I am. So that gives me more time to focus on the stuff that I'm just naturally better at, like giving tickets to people. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for being so open. That was really awesome. Um, yes. Yeah.
hope to yeah see you soon and continue the chat <laughs> thanks thanks see ya thanks a million man thanks for having me